I want to tell you the true story behind the letter to Philemon. Philemon's a, he's a rich man. He, uh, I know that because in the first lines of the letter that bears his name, we find out that he uh, both hosts a church in his house, which means that he has to have a large enough house in the ancient world to host said church, which means he's got a big, big place, and it's not very common in those days. And we find out that uh, he's a slave owner, which was common for lots of people in the, in the ancient world, and uh, certainly for, for him that was the case. It meant that he had land holdings, and he had the means to employ somebody like that. So he's got a lot of money. He's got a wife. Her name's Aphia. She is addressed in the letter as well. He's got a, he's got a kid, Archippus, or Archie, as we'll call him, and they together host this church in, the, in their home. Committed Christian people love the church, love the Lord. They know the Apostle Paul. It's how they probably got into this. Philemon probably was appointed by Paul when he left the city or the town of Colossae, which is not a big town, right? It's not a Vancouver. It's more in Abbotsford. But he got appointed to be one of the leaders of the church in that town. And like I said, he, he, owned, he owned slaves. One of those slaves' name was Onesimus. Onesimus uh, maybe was in charge of something big and he failed to deliver, or maybe he just got sick of Philemon on one, one particular day. We're not led to believe that Philemon was a harsh slave owner. There were harsh slave owners in those days, but there were also some very kind and generous ones. We presume that Philemon, the way he's described in this letter, was more of the generous kind. But something happened in the home of Philemon to lead Onesimus to say, I'm out of here. And so in the dark of night, he, he took off, but not before he took everything he could find. You can imagine him sneaking through the house late at night, quietly, you know, tiptoeing and opening the drawers and grabbing the candlesticks or any kind of silver coins he can find. And before anybody is awake, he, he was gone. In those days, uh, runaway slaves, if they were caught, the punishment was usually death. In fact, there's stories about crucifixions of thousands of slaves who were runaways or something else that Rome made a, an example of. So at least he was going to get beaten to within an inch of his life, or he was going to get crucified. So this was a pretty big decision he had made to leave. Stole all the things left, and he took off to the furthest place he could find, Rome, 2,500 kilometers away. It's a long trip. Didn't have a minivan for that. One on his, on his feet. He funded the trip, likely with the stuff that he, he had stolen, and uh, eventually ended up in Rome. Rome is a huge city, easy to mix in with the people there. It's a great place for a runaway slave to find himself especially one who's like awash with cash. And we presume that Onesimus, not a Christian yet, goes up there and just lives large with all this money that, that he's got. He does what anybody who's visiting Rome or come to live in Rome does. He has lots of opportunities to fill your carnal desires in, in Rome, and we just presume he did so. We don't know how long he was there, maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe years, probably more like years. 
And he just so happens to run across an associate of Paul's. We don't know which one. We don't know if it's Timothy or Epaphroditus or where they met, whether it was on the street or in a shop or just on the side of the road, or maybe it's at the Colosseum while they're watching some games or whatever, but he sat down next to one of these associates of Paul, and they started a conversation, we presume. Maybe the conversation went, hey, my name's Timothy. Where are you from? As they sit there in the Colosseum watching the games. Oh, I'm a long way away. What do you do? I'm in, I'm in investment. How long have you been in Rome? A few years. They start talking like, like you do. Now, Timothy, of course, being an associate of Paul's, he's going to be interested in sharing the gospel with the guy. That's why he's there. That's why that's the way they viewed their whole lives, Paul and his associates, was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Here's a Gentile. Maybe Timothy proclaimed the gospel to him at that moment, or maybe he said, listen, I, I would like you to meet somebody. Would you come with me? He's an interesting guy. He's in Rome. Um, he's, he's under house arrest. <laughs> and he was. Paul was under house arrest at the time. Doesn't mean he was in a hole in the ground with a Roman, you know, as a Roman prisoner. But he, he was under arrest as a Roman citizen, metaphorically chained to the guards, right? They had to come every day and, and see him, and he couldn't, leave, he couldn't leave his house. He needed people to come and take care of him provide him goods and food and clothing and all those sorts of things. Timothy was probably doing that kind of work for Paul at the time when he meets Onesimus, and then they invite Onesimus over, and for whatever reason, Onesimus say, yeah, that sounds great. So he does. He goes over and visits Paul. Maybe it's on the first occasion or the second occasion or the third occasion, but eventually in these conversations that he has with Paul, he comes to faith in Christ. He believes the gospel message, right? Christ died for my sins. And I can have eternal life through faith alone in him. And he becomes immediately Paul's gopher, another one of these guys who goes and does all the delivery stuff for him. Can you get me some chips from the store? Yeah, Nesmus was that guy, you know. He was seasoned at that kind of work. Maybe it was a year that went by or two years, and Paul and Onesimus become very close friends, start to trust each other. Paul says in the letter, uh, he... This is, he's my very heart. Dear, dear friends. Probably talked about all sorts of things, but at some point along the way, Onesimus starts to, re, start, starts to get like a strike in his spirit. He's a Christian now, and he's looking back over his life, and he's starting to realize that there have been some significant places where he has wronged some people. And he's being bothered by this, and so he, he goes to Paul, Maybe it's on one evening where they're sitting there around the fire or after a dinner that Onesimus has provided and they sit there and Onesimus finally says, Paul, I've got to tell you something. Um, I, I have been keeping a secret from you. It's about what happened before I was a, a Christian, but I feel like I need to share it with you. You see, I used to be from a town called Colossae and Paul said, Colossae? I know that town. In fact, we planted a church there, Paul says. Oh, did you? Well, anyway, I was from this town of Colossae, and I, I, I was a slave. And I ran away. I got my freedom 
on one night, but it wasn't just my freedom that I got. I also stole from my, from my owner a whole lot of things, went through the whole house, cleaned the thing out. Really, who is your owner? Philemon. <gasps> Philemon. You know, Onesimus, Philemon was the man I left in charge of the church there. When I planted, he's a good man. You know Philemon? Yeah, I know Philemon. Well, here's the thing, says Paul. I, I have a letter. I've written it to the church in Colossae, and I, want, I need somebody to carry it for me. So I want you to carry it back. You've got to go back, and you've got to sort this thing out, man. But I'm not going to leave you empty-handed. I'm going to give you another letter in your other hand, and you're going to carry it. This one's going to be directly to Philemon. When you get there, I want you to hand him that letter. He needs both, but he's not going to be very happy, so hand him the letter that I'm writing on your behalf. Onesimus, to his credit, says, sure, I, I need to sort this out. And so he travels those 2,500 kilometers back to Colossae. You can imagine the morning or afternoon that he arrived and Philemon out on his veranda drinking his sweet tea or whatever it is that he was, olive tea, whatever it is that he's, he's drinking at that time. And he looks off in the distance and he sees the familiar gate of a, of, of a former slave of his who robbed him blind. And he thinks... Surely that's not Oness Onesimus. Honey, Afia, come here. Does that, that looks like Onesimus, doesn't it? But surely he would not come back, not after all that he's done to us. And the closer he got, the closer he got, it is. It's Onesimus. <laughs> Honey. You can imagine that meeting as, as Onesimus walks to him and quickly fumbles for out of his sack the letters, the scrolls. And he said, before, before you get too angry, Philemon, I have a letter. It's from a mutual friend, Paul. I met him in Rome. Here, he wants you to read it. Give me that. We're going to deal with you. And he reads, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Honey, he's a prisoner again. <laughs> can't, can't keep some people out of trouble. And Timothy, our brother. Oh, Timothy's still with him. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow work. You know, Onesimus, we are dear friends, me and Paul. Dear friends. He put me here. That's why he calls me a fellow work. He put me here. Also, Afia, honey, he includes you, our sister. And Archie calls you a fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does he say next? What do you think Paul's going to say to his old friend about his new friend? What is he going to say to the, the slave owner about his former slave who robbed him blind? And more importantly, what is the responsibility of Christian people to sort out their relational fractures? 
When someone wrongs you, how should you and I respond to that? And when we wrong others, what kinds of lengths should we go to to try to make it right? How should the gospel of Jesus and the knowledge that we've been forgiven affect the way that you and I act toward one another as Christian brothers and sisters now? In our business dealings and in our relationships like marriage and family and baseball and hockey and how should it affect that? Well, that's what Philemon is about. That's what the book's about. And this little book is going to help us. 25 verses, four weeks today. I'm just dealing with those first three verses, all right? So you need to come back if you want answers. But this week, I want to raise three questions that are raised at the very beginning of the letter that I think we need to deal with kind of as a preamble, all right? Number one, why does Paul call himself a prisoner of Jesus? Number two, what can we learn from churches, meeting, and houses? And third, and the one I'm going to spend most of my time on, does the Bible endorse slavery? Right? Stories about a former slave being sent by an apostle of Jesus Christ back to his slave owner. Um, what? So, why does Paul call himself a prisoner of Jesus? What can we learn from churches, meeting, and houses? Does the Bible endorse slavery? All right, here's the first of those. Why does Paul call himself a prisoner of Jesus? You saw that, right? That's like the first, first thing he said. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow, fellow worker. The prisoner of Christ Jesus. I, was, I had the opportunity a number of years ago to meet some pastors in Southeast Asia who all had less than their full complement of fingers. It was weird. You'd shake their hands, and the first guy would be missing his pinky, and the next guy would be missing his next two. One guy was just missing his middle finger. I finally asked the missionary there, why is it that every one of these pastors in this region have less than all their digits? And the missionary said, uh, so here's the thing. These men all come from from uh, an area, a closed country, to the gospel. And so these guys, they go and they quietly proclaim the gospel in houses and in little meeting places. And it's not uncommon for the police to find out about it and to get an informant there, somebody who's so sort of, you know, sneakily undercover, and they report it to the police, and then they break it. The police break into the meeting. They will often arrest everyone, but they're particularly interested in arresting the pastor. They'll take that pastor, put him in a hole in the ground, where he'll be for sometimes six months. No, no trial, but they will come to that pastor on a regular occasion and they will say, you need to recant for everything you said. Publicly recant. Go out and tell all these people that what you said was a lie. And of course, these guys are like, no, we're not gonna do that. All right, will you do it if we, if we take your fingers from you? And they, they would hold the snippers over the digits and say, will you recant? The fact that these men don't have all their fingers, Jeff, is a sign that they're faithful. Now, can you imagine yourself being in their position? You're, you're going to preach in a closed country. You know it's dangerous. And in the middle of your talk about Jesus, the doors of the church break open. And there they are, armed guards. They come, they take you into the prison, and they hold the snippers to your fingers. While they're holding the snipper to your finger, if I were to ask you, of whom are you a prisoner today, what would be your answer? 
You'd say the government. This dude. Government. You know what you would probably not say? I'm a prisoner of Jesus. And yet that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's under house arrest under the authority of Rome. They have broken in on him and tried to stop him from proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And yet when he looks at the circumstance that he's in, he says, I am a prisoner, not of Rome, not of this particular guy, but of Jesus Christ. This is his viewpoint, by the way, of his, his imprisonment in, in, in other places. The book of Philippians was written roughly around the same time that the book of Philemon was written. And listen to the way that Paul describes the same imprisonment that he talks about in this line, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. When in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, listen to what he says. He said, now I want you to know, you Philippian church, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment, namely, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. In other words, listen, isn't it amazing that God has done that putting me in prison he has provided me a live audience who are forced to be here to whom I can preach all the time. Like it's the same guy. He shows up every day and then another guy shows up for the night duty. So I start by preaching to the first dude and then they give me another dude and I do the same sermon. And then I do it over and over and over and over again. Isn't this phenomenal? So the gospel is going forward among a bunch of these guards who would never be reached otherwise. And... While I'm in here, there are people outside the doors of the churches, outside the doors of this prison, in the churches who are feeling themselves a little bit, right, in terms of their preaching. They're like, oh, if they're going to get Paul, I'm going to proclaim more boldly. So my imprisonment here is furthering the gospel here and out there. Prisoner of Jesus, praise God. You see what he does here? He sees the purpose in it all. And it frames his experience of the circumstance. It's really interesting at the end of the book of Philippians, Philippians 4, verse 22, listen to what Paul says, that all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So some of these guys gave in, right? The people with the guards. And this is the, this is the way it works. God does the things he does in your life and my life with a purpose and, and a plan. And you need to be repeatedly reminded of that over and over again, lest you act like an atheist. You see, there's a difference between seeing your circumstances as an atheist and seeing your circumstances as a Christian. If you see your circumstances as an atheist, what you say is, man, this whole thing stinks and that guy's at fault and that person's at fault and those might be right. But there's no guiding principle or plan in any of this. You are just hurtling through space, just a victim of fate, whatever that is. And it's all gonna end not in justice on those who persecuted others, but just in dead nothingness. You're gonna be eaten by worms, yay. That, that's, the, that's the view. And so you get angry and frustrated about everything that's going on. How dare this thing happen to me in this moment? And yet if you're a Christian, you get angry and frustrated by the injustices around you and that are perpetrated against you. They're, they're evil and wicked and terrible things. 
God hates them too. And yet you also know that all of those things are filtered through the hands of a God who loves you. You are a prisoner of Jesus, even in your cancer, even even in your financial difficulty, even even in your family dynamics, even in all of that, those things are in 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 your life filtered through the hands of a God who loves you and seeks your good. You need to remind yourself of this over and over again. I was riding in a plane uh, a little while ago. It was the worst flight I'd ever, I've ever taken because the little kid who was sitting behind me and the guy who was sitting next to me, right? This little kid was kicking everything. His, he, he actually was a, a boy, his sister, the younger sister, who was just addicted to the iPad. His boy, his sister, a mother and a father. The mother had been looking after the kids, I think, for the entire very long journey. They had come from somewhere else, Right? And we were flying back to Vancouver. This is, I think, their second or third flight. I just overheard what them talking about it. The father was totally disengaged, you know, as fathers do. If I had that kid, I'd be disengaged too. Anyway, he, so he was, the kid, guy sitting next to me was so, oh, I just, I'm going to yell at this. And I said, well, he, he wasn't my friend, the guy sitting next to me. I just met him. And I said, you can't don't yell at him. It's just not, not going to work. But anyway, he kept kicking, and we, it was terrible. And the kid kept complaining the whole time. The boy, ah! everything. And the mother just finally said, I'm done. And she put her headphones on and put her head against the (laughs) thing. And the father was like, who'd been totally disengaged, was like, what? Oh, what? I guess I'm in, right? You know? (laughs) It just tapped this guy in. And he grabbed grabbed this boy and he put him on his his lap and he's sitting there, he's holding him and he said, and he, he he reasons with this kid who's been freaking out this whole time. He says, listen, have I ever, have I ever taken you anywhere in your entire life that has caused you harm? Have I ever done anything to you that has hurt you? Ever? Can, can't you ultimately trust me? I know you're scared and you've not experienced stuff like this before, but can't you just trust me that I've got a plan? Kids, yeah, yeah, and he calmed, he calmed down. Eventually, we got to the gate, and he, uh, remember the son, the boy, ran off of the jetway, right? Right past me, because we got out just in front of him, and he ran right past me, and he ran out the gate, and there were grandparents there, and he's hugging and running around. He's thrilled, right? And I, I think about that all the time, because I feel what that kid, I understand his viewpoint on the matter, like, because from his point of view, he's just hurtling through the air in a large metal tube, and he doesn't know where it's going and how it's getting there. And I'm sure his parents have told him, look, at the end of this, it's going to be really great. Grandma and Grandpa are going to be there. But that doesn't really change them the moment as much. I feel that. I feel like in my life, I'm hurtling through the space in a large metal tube, and I don't know where it's going. And I know what God says about my future, that you are going to reach a place that's better than any grandma or grandpa. But in the moment, when it doesn't make any sense, I'm like, they're going to kick in the people in front of me and everyone around me. That's, that's what I'm like. And you know, the only thing that ever really gives me any kind of peace in the midst of it is when my father pulls me on his knee and says, have I ever led you astray? Jeff, have I ever, ever put you in a situation that ultimately caused you harm and not good? You need to hear that again. We're prisoners of Jesus. 
Second, what can we learn from churches meeting in houses? Uh, here, here's verse one. And two, this time Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, to the church that meets in your home. That was a common thing for wealthy people in the early church to do, was to host the church in their home. There are those who've come in after this and said, well, that basically means that every church that doesn't meet in homes is unfaithful. That actually what God wants is all of us to be meeting in homes. There are people today, even in the house church movement, who have made that argument. There is a difference between a biblical prescription and a biblical description. Paul is, there's nowhere in Scripture you're going to point to that says, thou shalt meet in thy neighbor's home. It's, it's, not, it's not there. What you do is have a description of people meeting in homes, and there's a reason for that, because persecution was a big deal. One of, the, one of the best ways to avoid persecution was to not put a big building on the side of the, side of the road and say, church meets here at 10 a.m., right? That's, that's not a way to do it. But if you meet quietly in people's homes, eventually churches outgrew the homes and they ended up building buildings and they were in settings where, thank God, the governments were far more amenable to their presence. And so there's that. But the, 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 the point that I'm making here is that there, is, there seems to be in the, in the New Testament an understanding among wealthier people that they have a larger obligation to the local church. They say, I have more, so I have a responsibility to use the more, to serve more. So you find this all throughout uh, the New Testament. Um, you have, of course, people meeting in the homes of wealthier people. Jesus and his disciples in Luke chapter 8 are, are supported by wealthier women who are saying, listen, we'll pay for this entire mission trip everywhere we go. These, this group, these group of, of women who have been freed, in some cases, from demon possession, but had means of their own and were using this to worship the Lord. You see Barnabas in Acts chapter four. He's a wealthy landowner and he sells some of his property and he brings that money and he lays it at the apostles' feet because he says, listen, there's people in this congregation who need, it more, need the money more than I need the land. And God's blessed me more, so I'm gonna bless them. I have a responsibility because I have more to use the more to serve more. Or to him who much has been given, much is required. To him who much has been given, much is required. You know that, right? You know that in every other area of your, of your life. If you're, when I was in, in, in college, I remember moving people. It's like every Saturday I had to move my friends out of one house to another. What is up with college students moving all the time? One of the, my, I'm in my 40s now. I haven't moved somebody in like 15 years. Praise Jesus. Like, I mean, and I, I never bought a pickup truck because I didn't want to be that guy who they call them, um, do you have a truck? Come on over on Saturday. There's pizza in it, you know? <laughs> no, nah. right, the pizza is going to be, anyway, okay, so. But you, you've done that. Many of you have done that. You show up. If, you, if you're a larger guy like me, they usually call and ask you, you look like you could lift a couple boxes. Come to my house, right? You show up and they have a room full of boxes. I got to one house one time to help one of friend Moon. He hadn't even packed any of this stuff up and I turned around and said, I'm out of here. I'm the, you do this first and I'll come back. But there usually there's a big room full of boxes and you go in there and it's usually a bunch of big guys and then some, some of their girlfriends or wives or whatever and they show up as well and they want to help out. So the girls come in and they grab a box usually 
right? And they carry a box out and then you follow in and you're like, well, man, if you carry one, I gotta do like five here, right? I'll, you try to do as many as you can. Even if you're crushed under the weight of it, you're fine. But there's always a guy, is there not, who spent the entire last week in front of a mirror working on his pipes, right? And he shows up and he carries that one box out. And you're like, what is, what, is this, this is all for show, this whole thing here? Yes, right? <laughs> and you, what, what's going on in your heart there? To whom much has been given, much is required. Yes? <laughs> right. What is true in moving your friend, your college friends, is true in life. And your responsibility, brothers and sisters, to the, to the church of Christ, God has placed many of you in the midst of this church with an expectation that what he has given you will be filtered through you to help the more. Similarly, that we as a church have a responsibility toward the rest of our world. We've been blessed greatly, and we as a church have a responsibility to we who've been given more, to use the more, to serve more. All right, third one then. Third question, does the Bible endorse slavery? Because the book is essentially about a guy who runs away. Yay, he's out of slavery. Yay, he meets Paul and becomes a Christian. Yay, and Paul says, go back. Oh, sorry, what? To go back to what? To the slave owner? What are you, nuts, Paul? Are you for slavery, Paul? Because there's other places that you say slaves obey your master. Like, you, you're for it? What do we do with a Bible that seems to sound that way? In fact, there's a guy named, uh, a guy who calls himself um, Gilgamesh, Horus Gilgamesh, not his real name. And uh, he was a former Christian and has now become an ardent skeptic. And he, he wrote a, a little children's Bible called the Awkward Moments Bible, it don't get, listen, do not buy this for your children. I'm not showing it so that you'll go out and buy it. It's, it's, it's basically a, to make fun of the Bible and say, oh, all you guys in your, in your children's storybook Bibles always kind of cut the edges off of the stories. You do know that the Bible has, contains all sorts of very awkward things. So here's one. Here's a picture of what he perceives the Bible to say about slavery. And so you see Jesus there on the slave ship on the shores of Africa, whipping all of the African slaves as they get on, on board the ship. His, the tagline of the Bible is, don't blame me, it's in the Bible. He wrote about this, about this picture. He said, what kind of God would issue a commandment against coveting another man's property, but not against making another human being a piece of property in the first place? What kind of loving God stands by as millions of his own children are bought, sold, and slaughtered, justified by his own laws? What kind of son of God would allow the father of the early church to utter a phrase such as, slaves obey your master? And there's a, there's a half truth in there. Yeah, like, what do we do with the Bible's take on, on slave? What do we do with the fact that Paul tells Onesimus to go back to Philemon? So here, as we finish, I want to give you uh, three facts about the Bible and slavery. Three facts about the Bible and slavery. Here's the first one. Slavery in the Bible is quite different from slavery in the New World. 
The system that, I, that, that the Bible is talking about of slavery is different than the system of slavery in the new world. First of all, it's not race-based. So the picture that you see of Jesus, you know, whipping African slaves as if Jesus were the great, you know, slave trader in the, new, in the African slave trade, that's just not the case at all. That's not even close to the case. Slavery in the new world is far different. It was race-based. It involved kidnapping people from one continent and enslaving them on another. That's not what took place. Most people who were slaves in the ancient world were there by their own choosing. By choosing, I mean they had gotten in some financial difficulty and they had sold themselves instead of declaring bankruptcy and basically starving to death. They sold themselves into the hands of the person they owed money to. And when they paid that off, they would be what we call manumitted, freed. 90% of the people living on the Italian peninsula, where Rome is, 90% of the people living there at one time in their lives had been, had been slaves. And slavery was better than, than destitution. Oftentimes, slaves were treated as possessions, which means, of course, that people cared for them a little bit more. Look, if, I, if I hire you and things go bad, I can just fire you. And you can go die over there. But if you're a slave, see, I've invested something in you and I can sell you as a possession, so I'm going to take greater care of my belonging. Like you take better care of the car you own than the rental you get, yes? <laughs> and so they got health care and shelter and exploitation was, was a reality and it happened. But advancement also happened. So we have stories in the Bible of Joseph being sold into slavery and eventually becoming the second in command of all of Egypt. We have the parable of the talents where you know, Jesus tells a story of a, of a rich landowner who's, who's going to go on a trip, and he leaves three guys in charge, and he, those guys are called doulas, slaves. This one gets $5 million to work with, that guy gets $2 million to work with, that guy gets $1 million to work with. They're all slaves in high-ranking positions in the household. Lots of responsibility. Now, I don't want to make it sound, though, that like slavery, it was a really great deal, you should be a slave too. People still owned each other, so the, the question still persists. But what about the way the Bible talks about that? We expect it just to condemn it outright, because that's, that's the way God feels about it, right? So fact number two. The Old Testament law does not condone. People will argue that it condones slavery. The Old Testament law doesn't condone slavery. It regulates slavery, so in Exodus 21, you, you get things said like, listen, kidnapping slaves is forbidden. So somebody can sell themselves into your possession, but you can't, you, you don't go out and steal people. If you abuse people, if you hit a slave in the eye or in the mouth and they lose a tooth, they get to go free and you have to take care of the tooth. Hebrew slaves were freed every seven years. So there was an automatic out date. So there was all these laws cutting the edges off of the harsh slavery conditions in the ancient world. But the question still remains, but why not a law that says don't ever do it? And don't those laws in the Old Testament just kind of give tacit approval to the fact that God's heart really isn't against slavery? God's heart is, yeah, it's okay. It's not a big deal. Actually, there's some help that we can get in answering that question uh, in, in Matthew chapter 19 in a conversation that Jesus has with some Pharisees. The Pharisees come up to him and they want to have a conversation about divorce. 
Listen to what they say, Matthew 19, verse three. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Like, can just divorce for any, re- any reason at all? His response here is really good. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made the male and female? He's essentially saying, hey, you religious leaders who are really smart and are experts in the law, in your reading of God's Bible, did you ever get as far as Genesis 1? (laughs) Haven't you read, he said, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And he said, when he made them, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, here's my answer. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Oh, well, why then, they asked, did Moses in Deuteronomy command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? See, Moses commanded that we divorce our wives. Jesus replied, "Um, Moses, note the word, permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. See, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. See, guys, listen, you're not paying attention that you're focusing on the laws that God gave after the fall, where God was trying to regulate your hardness of heart. If you want to know what God really feels about a thing, go before the fall and ask yourself the question, does God love divorce there? With Adam and Eve, did he say, you know, Adam, if you just get sick of her, just kick her out. Is that, is that what he says there? So in other words, the Old Testament laws are there to curb hardness of heart, but God's genuine intent, his real heart on matters, is found in the creation accounts. So folks, does God like slavery in the created order? Did he create Adam and Eve and their slave Joe? Were people ever intended to own other people? No. Well, why does God permit it in Or as some say, command it. He doesn't command it. He permits it. Why? Hardness of heart. God's never loved slavery. And you find this, okay, my third, finally, my third fact. You find this in the New Testament. The New Testament condemns slavery and subversively seeks its destruction. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter your socioeconomic standing, doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter anything like that. You all have equal access to God by one spirit. The Holy Spirit fills a slave as he much does as, as a free man. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, all one family, baptized into one spirit. And you say, well, but what's God's heart in the New Testament about slavery itself and about people who do, the, do enslaving? Uh, 1 Timothy 1, verse 9, we also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, for the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. Okay, so describe, who, who are we talking about when we're talking about unholy and irreligious? Those who kill their fathers and mothers, yeah, they, they'd be unholy. Murderers, yep, okay. Sexually immoral, those practicing homosexuality, slave traders, the Greek word there means enslavers, anyone who enslaves another. 
liars, perjurers. I'm going to give away the book of Philemon here just for a second. The end. Cliff, I'm not going to leave you in a cliffhanger. Paul writes the letter, hands it to Philemon, hands it to Onesimus. He delivers it to Philemon. And at the end of it, Philemon 15, he says, perhaps the reason he, Onesimus, was separated from you, Philemon, for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Not as a slave, but better than a slave, a brother. What, you, what is he saying? Free him, Philemon. But why isn't there a command in the New Testament that says, get rid, all you Christians, get rid of every slave right now. Be done with it completely. Well, N.T. Wright tries to argue an answer to that question. He says, why did Paul not order all Christian slave owners to release all their slaves rather than profit from an unjust social structure? Why not protest against the whole dehumanizing system? Well, what alternatives were actually open to Paul? Demanding release of all slaves would, without a doubt, have done more harm than good, making life harder for Christian slaves and drawing upon the young church exactly the wrong sort of attention from the authorities, and it would have been totally ineffective. One might as well, in modern Western society, protest against the mortgage system. Even if all Christians of Paul's day were suddenly to release their slaves, it's by no means clear that the slaves themselves or society in general would benefit a large body of people suddenly unemployed in the ancient world might not enjoy their freedom as much as they would imagine. But Paul's method is subtler. Like Jesus, his way of changing the world is to plant a grain of mustard seed which, inconspicuous at first, grows into a spreading tree. And in the meantime, he teaches slaves and masters to treat themselves and each other as human Beings. You see that image? He, he subverts it. He plants a seed and he expects it to germinate and grow in the communities of Christians so much that slavery just can't be done anymore because I'm not going to enslave my brother in Christ. And guys, it worked. Do not let anyone tell you that slavery in the new world was abolished apart from Christian faithfulness. Just do your history here. Just, just do your history. William Wilberforce was a Christian man who saw the African slave trade, read his Bible and say, that shouldn't be. And he raised up groups of others who would follow him to abolish it in England. Frederick Douglass, former slave in the United States, who wrote, pro, pro, uh, he, his writings proliferated all over the place. This man, Frederick Douglass, was a preacher and he was calling America to repent, Christian America to repent for their hatefulness. Read the Bible, he was saying. See what God says about the unjust. And this is unjust. And Martin Luther King, I dare you to read his stuff and come away and say, this guy didn't know his Bible. It's filled with Bible. His letters from a Birmingham jail are just expositions of Scripture. Because here's the fact. Faithful, Bible-saturated Christianity was the force that destroyed the New World slave trade. Faithful, Bible-saturated Christianity destroyed the slave trade. So the question that you're asking is, well, but did the, does the Bible condone slavery? Nah, it kills it. It kills it. You should come back next time.
imagine how much more there is here. It's three verses. All right, let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace. I'm thankful, Father, for, uh, well, your word and the work that it has done in our world. It has shaped our world in a profound way, and I pray, Lord, that more and more people's hearts would be warm to you, to your word, to understanding it rightly. I'm thankful, Father, for the work of organizations like IJM and others who are actively seeking to thwart the thriving slave trade of our day. We pray, Father, that we too would take a part, not just in, I mean, certainly in our minds against the racism that so quickly dwells there and easily dwells there, but also, Father, toward the views that we have toward those around the world, Father, who are under the hand of oppression. Help us to be prisoners of Jesus, walking lockstep with him. We're thankful for all these things and ask your spirit to lead us now in Jesus' name. Amen.